Welcome to the Reading Room. This is Room 26. In this special programme, we bring you the first half of the Reading Room Live, recorded at the Lincoln Performing Arts Centre. The second part of the show, featuring our special guest, Robert Llewellyn, will be available soon. But in this first part, we'll be hearing poetry from John Osborne and Andrew Golding, music from the fabulous Michael Reeve, as well as the Reading Room's regular features, such as Jamie Mackay bringing us the musings of a muddled mind, and our regular book group reviewer, Jill Hart, giving you her recommendation for our ever-growing list of 101 books to read before you die. And from Siren FM's The American Dream Team, Jodie Orton will be reading her very own fairy tale. But before all that, it's time to introduce our first performer, who appeared on The Reading Room to promote her superb first novel, Flick, which GQ predicted to become a slow-burn cult classic. She'll be reading from her new novel, Golden Boy, due for release early next year, from the editor of The Kite Runner and the publishers of Salmon Fishing in the Yemen. So to kick off The Reading Room Live... It's Abigail Tartelli. Thank you, Paul. The novel I'm going to read from tonight is called Golden Boy. It's my second book, and it'll be published May 2013 by Weidenfeld and Nicholson in the UK and by Atria, a division of Simon & Schuster in the US. Golden Boy is the story of Max Walker. Tanned, blonde, athletic and attractive, Max is the perfect son, the perfect sportsman and a perfect crush for the girls in his school. He's even really nice to his little brother. His seemingly flawless family is about to get even more perfect. His dad is running for election to Parliament. The spotlight of the media is about to encircle their lives. But Max has a secret and someone has found out. It's a novel about family, acceptance, courage, first love and dealing with the great changes that come with adolescence and with the unchangeable. The story is told from the perspectives of five people, including Max's little brother, Daniel. And I'm going to read two excerpts from Daniel's narration for you today. The second comes from later in the book, but the first is right at the very beginning. And here it is. My brother gets all A's at school and is generally always nice to everybody. He's on the county football team and he is captain. People like him because he's fair and he always makes sure the person who scored the winning goal holds the trophy in the picture for the paper. Whenever my family's in the paper, they show pictures of my brother. Mostly they cut me out. My brother's taller than me and he has straighter and lighter hair and my hair's dark and a bit curly and some people say it's ginger, which I've been teased about at school. Mum says he looks like an angel and I look like a little imp. But I don't think she meant to be insulting when she said it because she was smiling like I'd be pleased. My brother's friends, Mark and Carl, are funny. They're humorous funny, but they're also strange funny. When they're at our house sometimes, they go all quiet when I walk in a room, and I say, hey, you were talking about me. And they say, we weren't. And I say, what were you talking about then? And sometimes they make silly excuses, but sometimes one of them will say, we were talking about girls. And my brother will say, really, Daniel, I promise, we were talking about girls. And then I believe them because my brother would never, ever lie to me, because we are brothers, and we have a blood pact never to lie to one another. My brother's really popular with girls. I deduce this fact because a few times we have picked him up from school in the car, and he has been talking to a girl and holding hands, and then once he was kissing a girl, and I was shocked and horrified, and Mum laughed at my mouth, which was wide open. And she beeped the horn, and she waved at him, and my brother smiled and went red and got in the car. And when he got in the car, I said, Why are you so red? And he said, shut up, Daniel. And mum laughed again, even harder. 
The best thing about my brother is that he is the most amazing player of World of War ever. He doesn't even play it that often. He only plays it with me. He plays more on the Xbox with Mark and Carl usually, and we play on the Wii downstairs with mum and dad sometimes. And he also very rarely, but occasionally, plays on the Sega. I play World of War most nights until 8 or 8.30, and then I have to either have a bath and go to bed, or just go to bed, but normally have a bath and go to bed. Then I will read to mum before bed, or sometimes I will read to dad, but usually dad is not home yet. Sometimes my brother comes in and we have our talks, which are very interesting conversations about life. My brother says I am very wise, and he is right. I always have advice for him. We are very different people. Some different things about the two of us are good, though. Like, he doesn't know what he wants to be when he's older, but I'm a very advanced robot designer for my age, and I know exactly what I want to be when I grow up, a robotic engineer. I will either make an entire robot race, or I will use my robot powers to add robotic extensions to normal human beings, so they can be whatever they want to be. People would come into my workshop, and I would look at them, and I would improve them, until they were absolutely perfect and couldn't be improved further. I would work on my brother and make him really big and muscly and fast as a cheetah. And I would give him a really deep voice and a buzz cut and a gun that formed from his left arm when his heightened senses told him we were in danger. I told my brother what I wanted to be. And he said it was cool, but unfortunately he wouldn't let me add extensions to him because he wanted to be who he was and see how that played out. I said that was stupid. Who wouldn't want to be perfect or a robot? And that is why I've chosen to write my class essay about my brother. Sincerely, Daniel Alexander Walker, age nine and four fifths. Thank you. Later on in Golden Boy, when a secret about Daniel's brother Max is threatening to tear apart not only their family, but Max's life as well, the relationship between the brothers becomes tenuous. Daniel is kept in the dark about the secret but one night he can't sleep thinking about the tension in the house. Max comes into his room and tucks in bed beside him, but instead of a bedtime story, Daniel asks for an explanation. Mum and Dad are so whispery these days, I say to Max. I want to know about grown-up stuff. What's the real scariest thing in the world, Max? And you have to tell me out of loyalty. You promised never to lie to me again and you did a pinky promise. Max looks at me. In the dark, his seaweed-colour eyes are black with one small, thin oval of light. He breathes out, and I know he's going to tell me. So I take my hand away from his face, and I wait. He looks straight in my eye for a long time, then swallows and moves a little forward on the pillow. He thinks for a bit and opens his mouth. The scariest thing is a secret, he says, very slowly and sort of rhythmically. How can a secret be scary? I ask scornfully, but really wanting very much to know. Max swallows and breathes again, then looks at me. He thinks a bit and bites his lip. Secrets are like invisible maggots, Max says. No, they're like zombies, okay? They, they eat away at your brain. He touches my wrist. You know, like the zombies in Deadland. And then, then they eat at your guts. So you've got none. You've got no guts and you can't be brave. And they eat. They eat your vocal cords. So you've got no voice. You can't speak. And they eat. What? What else do they eat? They get out of you and they eat the air around you. They make it all thin so, you know, you can't breathe. 
and then they eat, they eat the other people around you. They eat mum and dad. Is that what's happening now? He pauses. Yeah, but you can't ask them about it, okay? Because then they'll know I've told you all this and they'll be mad at me. I swear I won't tell them. All right, what do you swear on? I think. Both their lives. Wow, okay. We're both quiet for a minute, but then I have a question. All of them? Huh? Will it eat all of mum and dad until there's nothing left? No. He looks around like he's thinking. It eats bits of their souls and worries around, like it goes around their brains, nibbling at their brain cells. So they get mean and snappy because, because that's what happens when your soul gets eaten. And the eating eats them up at night because it hurts, so they get tired. And it eats at love and empathy. So the things that bind you to other people get gnawed away at until they're thin and easily breakable. What's empathy? <sighs> empathy is where you understand other people, but you feel the understanding rather than think. It's different from sympathy. It's like where you can imagine yourself as that person. Do you know what I mean? Like me and you. Because sometimes I imagine I'm you. Do you? Yes. Why? I think. Because you're Max. And who's Max? Max asks. Max is... I get confused. What doesn't he understand? Max is Max. He's the best at World of War and he knows everything. Max clears his throat. Anyway, yeah, like me and you. Does the secret get your heart? I ask, when it eats everything. Yeah, bits of it. Does it get what's beneath your heart? What's beneath your heart? The center, your, I think, your you. The thing that beats like a drum and says, I am Daniel, I am Daniel, or I am Max, I am Max. You know, how you know you're you. Does it get that bit? I... Max's mouth is open and he looks at me and breathes in like a little whoosh. I don't know. Why are your eyes wet? Allergies, he says, and he turns his face away from me. And we go to sleep. And I dream of assassinating secrets with bombs, nukes, and a rifle with a silencer on the end. Thanks for listening. Now, I'd like to introduce you to a very talented young poet from the village of Fiskerton, uh, just outside Lincoln. Uh, he appeared back on room 20 of the reading room. You'll find that on our podcast. Uh, and he's just released his new poetry book called The Daft Menagerie. Ladies and gentlemen, Andrew Golding. Thanks very much. Since the day I became unemployed, I've been growing depressed and annoyed. Still, I've made a new start and I've taken up art. It's a subject I've always enjoyed. My latest artistic pursuit is historical figures in fruit. I've made Fred Astaire from a ripe conference pear and a pineapple-based King Canute. <laughs> the famous explorer Magellan, or the ship-launching visage of Helen, can be caricatured, if you're really that bored, with a wig and a honeydew melon. <laughs> I've spent the best part of today on George Eliot for my display. She wrote Silas Marner, she's now a banana. I think she would want it that way. <laughs> <laughs> but 
Thanks. Uh, now, uh, all my poems are very silly and very short, so provided you don't show too much appreciation, we can get through quite a lot of them. Uh, this one's called The Scarecrow's Compensatory Factor. I'm just a hay-brained scarecrow and I'm far from academic. I can't discuss mathematics or political polemic. But while I may fall short of ever passing my degree, nobody scares the crows away as beautifully as me. To my bird-spooking tactics, all you graduates must yield. I may not have a brain, but I'm outstanding in my field. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, now, you might not know it to look at me, but I'm actually a bit of a romantic, and so I'd like to read you a couple of love poems now. Uh, this first one's called Commercial Break. Your hair's a golden waterfall. Your eyes are so hypnotic. Your lips are full and sensuous. Your yogurt's probiotic. <laughs> your voice is low and husky, and your wit is so laconic. Your laugh is loud and hearty, and your sport drink's isotonic. Your beauty is so spellbinding, I cannot look away. Your sales, unbelievable, but must end Saturday. How tragic that society has been through such debasement that even our love poetry makes room for product placement. <laughs> uh, this one's called Not Tonight, Dear. The brave knight fell on bended knee before his lady love and spoke the words, to me you are an angel from above. But unbeknownst to him she was a lifelong atheist, which thus recast his compliment, to me you don't exist. Uh, I'm going to read to you now from uh, my new book, uh, my only book actually, it's called The Daft Menagerie, uh, I just published it this month. Uh, this is a book of animal poems, beautifully illustrated by my friend Rachel Burnett, uh, and I'll be selling these in the bar later if anyone's interested, but wait till you hear the poems first. Uh, this is called The Newt. Although his observations are incisive and astute, you'll never hear opinions or pronouncements from a newt. He'll never interject, proclaim, agree with, or refute the pains of being intelligent while also being mute. This is called the budgie. A geriatric budgie thought his marbles must be going when feathers on his right-hand side abruptly started growing. They grew and grew until they filled a quarter of his cage, which only proves the theory you grow more right-wing with age. <laughs> Uh, this is called The Lemming. Few creatures are more upbeat than the happy little lemming, who's subject of a slanderous myth that's worthy of condemning. They say he's suicidal, just like Ernest Hemingway, but except in urban legend, that is not the lemming way. <laughs> is that a groan I heard? <laughs> uh, this one's called The Worm. Go-karts, skateboards, rollerblades, and mountain bikes would be high up on the causes list of worm fatality. So if you're walking down the road and come across a worm, a fat one means a school day and a flat one means half term. <laughs> uh, and finally for the animal poems, this is called the oyster. A teenage oyster grew depressed with life under the sea and holed up in a darkened room proclaiming, woe is me. His father told the oyster, son, it's clear that you are thirsting for something more exciting and the world is full to bursting with wondrous things for you to do and sights you could be seeing. So get out there and live your life. The world's your human being. <laughs> Thanks. I'm going to finish now with a slightly longer poem. Uh, this is called Sincerity, 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 Punchline. I've never been an expert in romantic conversation. 
I suffer with a terminal emotional constipation. You see, I have a problem with the art of being sincere. I panic, get embarrassed, and succumb to social fear. Then rather than declare my love, I blush and make a joke, and leave with tail between my legs and wish I'd never spoke. With every girl I fall for, it's the same thing every time. Sincerity, 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 punchline. I've never had much trouble making lovely women laugh, but it's not much consolation in the lonely aftermath when they're in the arms of some guy who can speak what's in his heart in the way that I intend to, but can only make a start. Two-thirds into my speech, I inadvertently ad-lib, a joke or witticism that's hilarious but glib, and makes her laugh but only serves to wreck and undermine. Sincerity, 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 punchline. But long ago, there was a time I almost broke the curse. Back when I was at school, before this tendency got worse, when speaking to the girl I loved, I found, to my delight, I'd tapped an unknown eloquence with not a joke in sight. I thought this time I'd cracked it, and I would have, but alas, I couldn't get the whole thing out before the end of class. The bell rang and disturbed my speech before I made her mine. Sincerity, 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 lunchtime. <laughs> Thanks very much. You're listening to The Reading Room Live here on Siren FM. Let's give it a cheek cheer. God is good for one, isn't he? Now, every month on The Reading Room, we invite guests, colleagues, and sometimes even Joe Public to contribute to our 101 books to read before you die list. It's a brilliant idea for a snippet of radio that lets you in the nation's reading habits and recommendations. It's so good, really wish I'd thought of it, but Johnny did. So tonight, we're going to hear the contribution by our regular book reviewer, Jill Hart. The Reading Room's 101 books to read before you die. This is Jill Hart, regular reviewer of the Reading Room Book Group, and the book I've chosen is Three Men in a Boat by Jerome K. Jerome. Whilst leafing idly through a medical textbook, Jay discovers he is a medical marvel, suffering from every disease known to man, bar housemaid's knee. After serious consideration, his doctor issues him with the following prescription. One pound beefsteak with one pint bitter beer every six hours, one ten-mile walk every morning, one bed at 11 sharp every night, and don't stuff your head with stuff you don't understand. Shaken by this near brush with death, our hero, with two friends and a dog, sets off on a river trip up the Thames as a rest and healthy living restorative. He details a beautiful idyllic picture of the landscape, sights, sounds and history of the river alongside the boy's exploits along the way. Tactics to avoid river swimming. The vagaries of kettles and frying pans for alfresco dining. Getting lost in Hampton Court maze. Being towed by girls. Fish tails, laundry tails. More than one pub and a strange run-in with an evil-minded swan. They conquer all except the British weather. For me, this is pure escapism to a kinder, simpler world where the absurdities of human nature can be smiled upon. I know of no better tonic. Three Men in a Boat has seen me through many bouts of flu, the sniffles and the blues of all descriptions. I am confident of its restorative powers and that they will last me a lifetime. Jill Hart, ladies and gentlemen. 
Now, regular listeners uh, will know that Jill adds the, the clarity and perspective quite needed to our reading room book group. Uh, but also in the audience tonight is someone who, who emails in regularly. Where's Kathy? She won't put her hand up. Someone, hiya, Kathy. Um, now, Kathy's also been emailing in long before we got free books as well, so that, that really counts. Thanks very much. Now, the next book we're going to review uh, for our second anniversary program on Sunday, 1st of July, is The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry by Rachel Joyce. I've got your copy here, Kathy. Um, if you're going to read it or plan to read it, then let us know what you think. Uh, we can't get you a free copy, but we'd like to know all the same. Now, our next guest tonight is from The Siren Stable, co-host of the American Dream Team. Every Tuesday between 5 and 7 here on Siren. Uh, she's also an incredible writer, here with a fairy tale that she wrote in America. Please welcome Jodie Orton. And this is called The Princess and the Epiphany. Once upon a time, there was a beautiful princess. She would sit up in the tower and gaze out across the valley, scouring the horizon for the prince that she knew one day would come and rescue her. She never gave up hope that he was out there somewhere, battling dragons, goblins, and all sorts of other fairy tale nasties to get to her. Then one day, when the princess was 28, she started to feel a little bit sick. Her friend, the court jester, told her not to be so silly. He joked it was probably just that she had developed a sudden problem with altitude, which affects one when all one does is stand at the top of high towers all day long, he explained, raising his eyebrows. For another year, the sick feeling continued to bother the princess. She began to have a sinking feeling in her stomach too and started to worry about whether the prince would come anytime soon, if at all. On the princess's 29th birthday, the castle was bustling with people who had come from all over the land to celebrate her big day and shower her with gifts. The people of the land were brought in one by one with presents for the princess. Some were expensive gifts like gold and jewels, Others were from the peasants, handmade items which the princess cherished just as much as the expensive gifts. Every time the fanfare would sound and the princess's butler would announce the next guest, the princess looked longingly in the hope it may be her prince walking through the big wooden door. But her prince never came. Some of the knights of the land were very handsome and chiseled in their suits of armour, but were only after one thing, power and becoming king. They were all far more interested in dating her older sister and heir to the crown. Sometimes they befriended the princess in order to date her sister, but by the time she had cottoned onto this, they had already moved on to her sister, who saw them for what they were and ordered them to be beheaded. Some of the peasants were also handsome in a rugged kind of way. Unfortunately, they too were only after one thing, cheaper farm rentals. The princess was a bit slow in realising this was the only reason they were dating her, and by the time she did, her older sister was already well onto them and was in the process of arranging their beheading. Over the next year, the princess dated even more chiselled knights and more rugged peasants, each of them ending with the same fate. One day, shortly before the princess's 30th birthday, a knight was beheaded. The prince was hanging around the chopping block talking to the executioner who was doing his best to scrub the slab clean before the next execution. The executioner was a very mysterious man who wore a dark cloak with a big hood and never spoke, only nodded when the king or his eldest daughter gave the sign for the execution to commence. Oh, executioner, cried the princess. When will I ever meet a man who isn't just after me for my sister or my father's charity? When will I meet a man who is interested in me? She leaned against the gallows, her head in her arms, roaring her eyes out. 
The executioner stopped scrubbing and looked up at the princess. Very slowly, he lifted his hands and pulled back the big hood that had hidden his face. As he did so, the princess gasped, for it was not a man behind the hood, but a wise old woman. Fairy godmother, screamed the princess, what the? My child, replied the fairy godmother, calm yourself and I will explain. Let's go to Burger Kingdom and I will tell you everything. So off they went, and over their mighty medieval meals, the fairy godmother began to tell the princess all about how she'd ended up becoming the executioner. After Cinderella had found her prince, the fairy godmother had been the most popular celebrity in the entire land. She had it good for a while, granting wishes to A-listers such as Sleeping Beauty. Then came the whole Snow White debacle, sighed the fairy godmother. I didn't think Snow White needed a fairy godmother, asked the princess, puzzled. Neither did I. But the paperwork came through saying Snow White needed help, so that's what I did, or tried to do. I spent months trying to wake her up, and then one day I succeeded. Of course, how was I supposed to know that she was only to be awakened by her prince? Snow White's father tried to sue me, but luckily we agreed an out-of-court settlement. I had to take the executioner's job. Nobody else would employ me, and this way nobody would know it was me. Oh, fairy godmother, exclaimed the princess, poor you, driven to a job like this. Actually, it's not so bad, said the fairy godmother. The number of beautiful, intelligent, young girls like you who've had their hearts broken by princes and peasants who should know better. I'm delighted that I can finally start ridding the population of the bad ones so that the true princes find an easier path to the woman they love. You see, she continued, there is someone out there for everyone, but you must live your life until you find that person or that person finds you. If you sit and wait for life to happen, you'll miss all the fun. As she returned to the castle, the princess was smiling to herself. She went up to the top of the tower, as she always had, where the court jester was waiting for her. Where the bloody hell have you been? he asked, annoyed. I've been sat here on my own for ages waiting for you. You're supposed to be up here pining for Prince Charming like you do every other day. Not anymore, said the princess defiantly. I'm sick of waiting here for the prince of my dreams to come. I'm going to go on and live my life as I've always secretly wanted to. And when the time is right, the prince and I will find each other. Blimey, said the court jester, what are you going to do? Well, said the princess, smiling, I've always wanted to be a writer for one of those glossy mags in the city, something like cosmic potion or armour, she replied dreamily. I know I can do it. I'm going to leave at the weekend, she announced. But what about your 30th birthday celebrations, asked the court jester. Everyone's coming for the party on Saturday. You can't miss it. Don't worry, I'll leave on Sunday, she told him and gave him a big hug. And so the princess had her 30th birthday celebrations and the next day travelled in a carriage to the city. She sent resumes to all the glossy magazines, but no one had a job for her. Just as she had started to give up hope, the words of the fairy godmother came back to her. If you sit and wait for life to happen, you'll miss all the fun. Right, she thought. She marched into the offices of Cosmic Potion and demanded to see the editor. The editor's secretary refused to let the princess pass and while they were talking, the editor came in. Sorry, this young lady says she won't leave without talking to you, said the secretary apologetically. The editor looked at the defiant young lady. It's okay, let her speak, she nodded at the princess. I am a young princess, 30 years old, not married, struggling to find the right prince. I realise that I have to follow my dreams, not wait around the castle for the prince to show up. I want to work for Cosmic Potion and tell other princesses that they must enjoy life, and when it was time, they will meet their prince. The editor was so enthralled with the princess's speech that she hired her on the spot. 
Over the next few months, the princess worked at Cosmic Potion, learning how the magazine worked. After a while, the editor let her have a small column, which she used to tell women to follow their dreams, and within three years, she was a staff writer for the magazine. The princess loved living in the city and was having such a good time enjoying her job and socialising with friends that she forgot all about the search for the perfect prince. Some years later, the princess was walking down Myth Avenue. As she crossed the road, a runaway carriage came hurtling towards her. She screamed, and the next thing she felt was the man next to her pushing her out of danger's way. As they landed on the floor, she opened her eyes and looked at the face of the man who had rescued her, her prince. She smiled as he smiled back. The end. Now you're listening to The Reading Room Live here on Siren FM, a very short space of time. Robert Llewellyn will be talking to me and reading from his new novel, From the Stage Here at the Lincoln Performing Arts Centre. Now it's time to introduce our musical guest this evening. He was recommended to us by Abigail Tartellian, and we're very pleased she did. He recently found himself being championed by Six Music's Tom Robinsons, and with the first of two songs tonight, this is Wasted on Me by Michael Reeve. Heading out once again Saw you feel alive Oh, where you gonna run to? Where you gonna run to now? You push and pull yourself apart And you don't finish what you start But they won't call your name anymore Cause you don't answer But if you are now You can say that everyone else Had the chance But you don't know now You can't see The time is wasting It's wasting its time on me Heaven help you now If you feel this way Oh, what's it gonna come to? What's it gonna come to now? Don't let yourself believe it's true Cause all of this, it comes down to you And they won't call your name anymore Cause you don't answer You are now, you can say
Again, so you feel alive. Well, where are you gonna run to? Where are you gonna run to now? constantly looking for new and interesting spoken word to add to the show and, and someone that makes me laugh out loud on a daily basis via Facebook is our next guest. I started reading his blog and it looked to me as if it would really work on the radio and it does. So please welcome one of the latest members for Team Reading Room with the musings of a muddled mind. It's Jamie Mackay. So anyway, the other day, I think it was a Tuesday, I was asked to write one of those day in the life of articles and I was struggling to think what I'd been doing all day. So I did the obvious thing. I didn't ask my girlfriend or consult my diary. I thought I'd check the internet history on my phone. Sort of like the film The Usual Suspects if it had been directed by a sheep with no money. And magically, here for those listening at home is my internet history list and I'll, I'll, I'll go through it and try and piece together my day. So starting from the bottom up, here's a typical day in my life. The first two are quite easy to explain. I heard that the singer Levin Helmer died, and whilst watching old videos of his band, I'd seen a video and found it was out it was by a singer called Liana Las Haves. All making perfect sense so far, perfectly normal, and certainly not worth reading out loud in front of a group of people live on the radio I spoon filmed. Now, the next one is where it starts to get tricky. Text from Dog. What would make me Google those words at the same time in a row? Now, I haven't got a dog. And I don't know any dogs that have got my number. Well, the, there was one, but... <laughs> it is within the realms of possibility that I had a text from a dog. So after consulting Google for advice, the obvious and only conclusion I could come to is this. The dog was watching the hairy biker's vacation and was particularly impressed by a Spanish scone recipe. Now, he didn't have a chance to catch the recipe, so he thought he would text me. Now, if he's got an iPhone, he could do it with his paw. I have looked into it. It is, it is possible. <laughs> anyway, so after about an hour, me and the dog, we made a huge batch of scones. Uh, we went by the name of the furry bakers then as well. But we had too many scones to eat. We couldn't eat them all. This would be ridiculous. It would make the story completely unbelievable. So what we did was we had a stall at our St. George's Day parade that just happened to be outside my kitchen window with a Union Jack, chef hat wearing dog, front of house, while I counted the money. I sort of a cross between the Apprentice, Twin Peaks, and Sesame Street. <laughs> After this, it appears that the dog, or Kevin, as I called him, borrowed my phone. As I'm sure you all know now, texting with a poor is possible, but not without its problems. Particularly after a day of flogging scones, your poor is slightly sticky, and the phone could have a covering flower on the screen. Kevin thought he was texting. It's so obvious now, I can't believe I'd struggled to retrace my steps up to now. So obviously, Snow Patrol, yes obviously translates as no petrol yet. <laughs> uh, did I mention that Kevin was a talking dog? 
I don't think I did. He did mention his car was running on fumes, what with all the baking and selling. And the last one, well, it all makes sense now. Waterhorse movie. That explains why, on that night, at 8 o'clock, I was sat next to a talking dog called Kevin, covered in flour and jam, watching a film called Waterhorse by mistake because he couldn't type Warhorse on my phone with his paw. <laughs> and thanks to the power of show business, Kevin the talking... Oh, hang on a sec, sorry. Very embarrassing message from... Oh, it's from Kevin. Sorry, stuck in traffic, will probably be late, soz lol. Sort of ruined the ending. Oh well, thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the rest of the show. <laughs> the extended reading room family sat around a, a table in the office, the shared pub, and uh, we called it the office and we, we were thinking about who to put on the programme and I said I wouldn't read anything this year uh, to allow time for someone else and people around the table so I said well... You may be sure. I said, okay, I'll do it. Okay, I'll, I'll do it before they change their minds. And this is something I've written called uh, Pork Pie. At my workstation, I push the little round button that engages the motor through gear one, then two, and the blade goes round. And the parts are then ground on a wheel that goes round and placed on a round plastic mound that's processed by another wheel that goes round and round. Everything's round. This is a cycle I repeat day in, day out, week in, week out, year in year out until the round klaxon sounds and sends me home, or like now, for lunch. From my round Tupperware box, I take out a pork pie, a roll filled with a round slice of luncheon meat and cucumber, a wagon wheel and some cheese that's molded in a round plastic mound. And I put the pork pie in my pocket and I drop the rest in the round bin. Everything's round. I open the door of the men's washroom using the round handle past the symbol of the man with the round head pushing down the round tap and watch the water swirl around and round the down plug hole. I push the round tap again and wash my face for an unknown time into a round mirror. I push the round button on the hand dryer, it's broken, so I use a towel. The towel's connected to a machine that makes the towel go back around and around and everything's round. Enough. I run out of the door and away from all this. I pull out my car keys with its round key ring and push the tiny round button that makes the round indicators flash. Sitting behind the round steering wheel, I drive away. And for a while, I'm calm. But there's a car driving too close behind me. It's an Audi. Of course it is. With its four circles linked together like four Audis driving too close to each other. And the noise of the round wheels on the tarmac vibrating the cylindrical suspension. Every gear change, the cogs go round, engaging shafts, belts, alternators, motors and fans. Every rev sends the needle round the dial, up the speedo, as the wheels go faster and faster, round the roundabout, past the red round signs and onto the ring road. <laughs> Everything's round. I push the round button on my car radio and I hear Spinning Around by Kylie Minogue. Button two, you spin me round like a record by Dead or Alive. Three, round round by the Sugar Babes. Number four, and now on Smooth FM, it's time for our movie special, starting with this, written by Tim Rice and Elton John from Disney's The Lion King, The Circle of Life. <laughs> Everything's round. The round red lights of the train crossing flash, and I push the round glove box button, and 30 or so round CDs fall out. I pick out Dusty Springfield's best album. Dusty in Memphis, and for a while, I'm calm. Until track eight, windmills of your mind. <laughs> I push the little round eject button, turn the handle down to wind the window down. It's an old car. 
Everything's round. And I throw the CD out like a frisbee. They're round, aren't they? And I pull into a lay-by behind a tractor with big round wheels. The tractor is towing a trailer with round bales of hay on it. I abandon the car and run and run and run until I'm in the middle of a field and all I can see are the odd shapes of the trees and the hedges, the stiles and the fences, stone walls and cows. I look up at the sky and the clouds and their ever-changing shapes bring me comfort and relief and I take a deep breath and smell that certain countryside smell, but even that can't upset me now, I'm free. I'm so happy I spin around like Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music, slowly realising that I'm now becoming everything I've been running from. I'm spinning around, everything's round and I love it. Until I step in what gives that countryside certain smell, a huge round cowpat. <laughs> I run and scrape and run and scrape and wash my shoes in a round puddle. I run some more and reach Lincoln past St. Catherine's roundabout, up the bizarre new layout of the high street and past a nursery. I can hear singing. The wheels on the bus go round and round, round and round, round and round. The wheels on the bus go round and round all day long. Everything's round. I walk into an off-license, pull out some round coins and walk away with some round cans. And I look at the notice board. It has an advertisement for the Lincoln Round Table and Rotary Club. I smell food. It's a pizza shop. Pizzas are round, aren't they? Everything is round. I stumble through the streets, drinking from the round cans. My head is spinning and I look up at the moon, which is, of course... I could have been at home watching Casualty. Let's try it one more time. I look up at the moon, which is, of course... Yeah. Very good, sir. No, it's crescent-shaped, actually, but we all know <laughs> it's the alignment of the sun making it appear otherwise. I walk a little farther and fall into the Lincoln Performing Arts Centre. It's the reading room live. And a handsome guy is basically pointing out what shape things are. But nevertheless, the crowd give him a huge round of applause. <laughs> and I look on his disgust that such an intelligent looking audience fell for such a cheap trick. <laughs> I go to the bar stall, it's a round stall a round table and I drink until my churning stomach has had enough and I put the round glass down on the round beer mat and put my head in the round bowl where round carrots appear. <laughs> my head straight back to the bar and a kindly man with a round face asks if I'm okay and I cautiously tell him how I'm trapped in a circular world with machines and cars and cheese and Kylie and Rotary Club and everything's round and I can't even run away and travel around the world because the world's round, everything's round. But it's not, says the kind man with the round face. The surface of the earth is completely uneven. Look how deep the oceans are. Look how high the mountains are. That's not round. But what about the atmosphere, I say? The earth has to include the atmosphere, so it's round. Everything's round. Even if that's true, says the kind man with the round face, it may appear to be round, but up close, that atmosphere will have flares coming off its uneven surfaces. And look at the erratic shapes around you, the lines, the triangles, this bar, the beer pump, electric pylons, marmalade, sparrows, bananas, Nigella Lawson. Tinsel, vacuum cleaners, knives, the number seven, cheese straws, Dora the Explorer, microwaves and gloves, sausages on sticks, doormats, breeze blocks, snowflakes, towels and tin openers, Xboxes and flowers, sponges, hammers, my Uncle John, the Eiffel Tower, Lego airplanes, ducks, the wires that are tangled up behind your telly, and of course, eggs. 
Of course, eggs. Of course, eggs, I say. This kind man with the round face is laughing, and I laugh, and in that laughter comes relief. This stranger, this kind man with the, the not-so-round face, now that I look closer, he's just simply a kind man. A kind man has given me permission to accept and appreciate other shapes. He's taken away my circular compulsion. I thank him, shake his hand, and offer to buy him a drink, which he accepts, giving a little joke about the shape of the bottles. I'd share it with you now, but you really had to be there. I'm much calmer now. The barman says, he can't help but overhear our conversation. And he finds it really interesting. He's a student of physics. And he felt that he must point out the kind man is wrong. And I am right. Sure enough, says, the Eiffel Tower is not round, but it and everything in the known universe is made up of atoms which are round. And those atoms are made up of electrons which are round. And they, the barman says, circle the protons and the neutrons which are round. So in theory, everything is round. Two bottles, was it? I did that a couple of weeks ago with a vegetarian pork pie, and it, it really stuck in the mouth. That's lovely. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to uh, introduce now. Sorry. <laughs> You're on live radio, you shouldn't really eat. Um, I'd like to introduce you now a writer and poet. Been touring with one, uh, John Peel's Shed. This is John Osborne. Been talking with a show called John Peel Shed, not with his actual shed. Um, hello, uh, I, I thought that I, I'm going to do some poems for about 10 minutes. I thought that because Robert Llewellyn is here after the break, uh, and he's one of those very kind of pro technology guys. Uh, he's got like a computer and he knows about electricity and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, I, I would do some poems about kind of how things were better in the old days. Like, I'm not really anti technology, but I quite, I quite like things kind of how they used to be. So uh, this is the first one. It's called Pages from CFAX. Because <laughs> CFAX doesn't exist anymore. I think that's, that's a shame. I spent many happy hours just watching the football scores change on teletext. <laughs> I'm worried about the future, I say, racing a car around a scalectrics track. Twitter trends with man worries about the future. What a loser, some kid replies. I spend the rest of the evening correcting the typos on his website. <laughs> there are too many television channels, I think, watching a channel devoted to people discussing whether there are too many television channels. I just like things better in the old days, I tell the studio audience when I'm invited onto the show. A small section at the back applauds. These are my people, I think waving, people who can't get to sleep at night, so read pages from CFAX as hot chocolate warms on the hob. There were too many blogs I write on my blog, <laughs> and immediately it disappears, like when a little girl says, I don't believe in fairies, and at the bottom of the garden, a family of fairies grieve their mum, taken so young. We are all on life support machines, I tell the studio audience, stomping on a MacBook. We are being drip-fed by these tubes, having God knows what pumped into our veins. 
Theatrically, I unplugged the USB cables I had carefully placed in preparation for the analogy. Let's all quit Facebook, I type as my status updates. And we all count down together, 10, 9, 8. And after 3, 2, 1, it's like when you've been in a traffic jam for so long, you say, right, and take off your seatbelts, turn off the engine. Um, I'm writing a, uh, a book about seasides at the moment, uh, which means I've been travelling around to lots of different seaside places, uh, which is quite cool. And every seaside that I've been visiting, I've been writing a poem about. Uh, it's like a non-fiction book, but also I thought it'd be quite cool to have poems that accompanied it, uh, which means that I've done some quite cool things. I was at the Isle of Wight last weekend to uh, have a guided tour of the Saucy Postcard Museum, and I've met a retired lighthouse keeper, and I went to Beachy Head to meet a guy who set up a chaplaincy team to patrol 24 hours a day to help kind of rid the kind of uh, reputation it has as a suicide hotspot. As I've been seeing well, really fascinating people and, um, and, and writing uh, poems about it as well. Uh, so like, the idea is we'll have a map of the British Isles, and all around the coast I'll have a, a poem for each place. Um, but I'm quite lazy, uh, so I've not done that many. Uh, writing poems is boring as well, so it might not get done. Um, but this is about, this is about Hastings, uh, where I was a few weeks ago. And it's one of my favourite seaside places. I was walking along the seafront, and there were uh, these two kids, maybe like 15, and they were busking, and they were amazing. So this is about them. No, it's for them. Dear the boy and girl busking on Hastings seafronts, please promise me you will be a famous band. We need this, the three of us. You for Jack Daniels in hotel rooms. Me so I can tell anyone who will listen that I saw them before they were famous, busking on the seafronts. I'd remember how I was looking for a post box and then just stopped in my tracks when I heard them and felt compelled to give them all the loose change from the zip bit of my wallet that I've never given money away before or since, but I felt so drawn towards these two, who I could tell weren't brother and sister or boyfriend and girlfriend, just the only two in their class with vinyl collections. They both had dads who liked Dylan, and my God, they were skinny. So dear the boy and girl busking on Hastings seafronts, please don't give up. Recently, I read this book about a retired lighthouse keeper who said that every day he spent in that lighthouse, he regretted not trying harder to be a footballer when he was younger, that he'd been strong and tall for his age and couldn't play a game without someone's dad telling him he should have trials with Villa or West Brom or Wolves. He lived in the Midlands, became a builder, started drinking. There were a few of us watching these teenagers busking in the rain, playing guitars, singing, and these were no dreary cover versions, these were tunes. Tunes, good haircuts, and an upturned trilby full of pound coins, enough to buy them a new amp. And when they were whispering to each other in between songs, making each other laugh, each one of us passes by would have queued all the way through the winter gardens to have swapped places with them. 
Once I went to a restaurant in Western Supermare and I left without paying. I hadn't planned to at the end of the meal. I just thought, balls to waiting for the bill. And I stood up and I put my coat on and I strolled out like I owned the Southwest. It wasn't until I switched my bedroom light out that night that I realized that at some point I'd given up on life. And that's why when I saw this boy and girl busking on Hastings seafronts, I couldn't help but picture the garage they rehearsed in. They'd practice every other Thursday, 7.30. Sometimes one of them would say, I've written a new song. And they'd sit down on the chest freezer and play it, while the other listened, sitting on a rocking horse that was in there for storage for some time it might be useful in the future. Thank you. Cool, thank you very much. Thank you for having me here as well. It's really exciting to see lots of people in a theatre. The last, the last time I did a poetry gig, it was uh, me and my friend Ross in Cambridge, and one person turned up. <laughs> and we said, well, we can stand here and do poems at you if you want, but that might be a bit weird. Why don't we go to the pub instead? So she said, oh, yeah, we can go to the pub. And we did, and me and Ross sort of ignored her. <laughs> we hadn't seen each other for a while. We just carried on. Uh, so this is um, called Our Waitress is the Employee of the Month. Her photograph is in the foyer, and I imagine her pretending not to be that bothered when it was announced at the team meeting, a semicircle of applause. But the next morning she'd have shown her mum the £20 high street voucher, and her mum will have said well done and meant it because she knows it's important to appreciate the small things. And in town, our waitress will have gone from shop to shop, content she didn't have to start work until half seven that evening, and trying on a maxi dress in River Island. She'd wonder whether it was for the time she'd helped an amputee cut up his food. Managing to strike the perfect balance between being too fussy and pretending she hadn't noticed. She didn't even need to say anything like, shall I help you with that? It was just this intuition she never even realised that she had, and as she helped chop up his gammon and potatoes, he will have told her he was in town to see his daughter, who had just proposed to her boyfriend, taking advantage of the leap year, and he was so nervous he wouldn't get on with his future son-in-law. And our waitress would have asked if he'd like a dessert. And at first he'd have said no, but she'd have said, oh, go on, because she knows it's important to appreciate the small things and she'd have smiled as he scooped up the last of his custards. Our table is ready. The four of us take our seats, and as she hands out the menus, puts serviettes on our knees, she must know that we know. We'd been in the foyer for so long, staring at her photograph, and I think, please, no one say anything. Don't let it be like the time we saw Dame Judy Dench get out of a taxi by the old Vic and shouted, Judy, Judy, until she turned and waved so awkwardly. Let's just be grateful that we're being served by the employee of the month. And as she carries out our plates of sea bass, we know that if any of us start to choke on a bone, we will feel her arm around us. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm going to do one more of these poems, uh, or, or, or that one at least, is from my new poetry book, which is called The New Blur Album. 
hoping some people might be looking for it online and, and buy it by mistake. <laughs> be really disappointed, but too late. Um, uh, this is my last one. It's called Death, God and the Universe. I'm stood on my balcony at midnight with a glass of southern comfort listening to the super furry animals. But for some reason I start to think of all the mistakes I made growing up when I didn't turn up to my own surprise birthday party. <laughs> when I missed an open goal when we were losing 1-0. When I promised Holly I would never let her down. I think of all the money I've wasted on boring nights out when there are people in Rwanda scooping muddy water into their cupped hands, pensioners shivering in their homes at Christmas. And I realize that life is too short to hate Neil Morrissey. <laughs> life is too short to watch Big Brother's Little Brother. <laughs> when I was young, before I'd heard of the Beatles, before I'd even tasted a strawberry, all I wanted was to be that kid on a BMX flying off the ramp, somersaulting through the air. But now I can't stop thinking about the things that I regret. When I lost 500 pounds playing online poker. When I called my teacher dad by mistake. <laughs> when I reversed the car into the garage door, it's because I was so unhappy with death, God and the universe. And it's important to have someone who will help soothe the pain of death, God and the universe. So tomorrow I'm going to call some friends, invite them round. I'll cook them fajitas, we'll watch the mighty boosh. Because I don't understand why people spend time unhappy when Sarah Lee Gatto is 99p at farm foods and <laughs> Hancock's half hour is regularly repeated on BBC Seven. Because sometimes death, God and the universe, all of it can stop still. And it is just you on the balcony at midnight with a glass of southern comfort listening to the super furry animals. Well, thank you very much. John Osborne there, and that collection of poetry he mentioned, the new Blur album, is available now from nastylittlepress.org. The second part of the show featuring our special guest, Robert Llewellyn, will be available soon. To find out more about The Reading Room and to listen to our previous shows online, visit our website, readingroom.podbean.com. <laughs>